Hi guys, I would like to thank everyone who donates to the Patreon account. The donations keep the show going. My computer is ready to go kaput after eight years. So the Patreon fund will help me get another computer, and that will, in turn, enable me to churn out more episodes. There will be more giveaways in the future. And just a reminder, you don't have to give a lot. A dollar a month would do. Any amount would be appreciated. Once again, the Patreon account is located at www.patreon.com slash leader1. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N and L-E-A-D-E-R-O-N-E. Thank you and enjoy the show. Richard Cottingham was born on November 25, 1946. His hometown is the Bronx, New York City. Richard demonstrated signs of aberrant behavior at an early age. He had trouble making friends with other children, considered, as he was, to be an oddball. When Richard was 12 years old, his family moved to Rivervale, New Jersey. He grew up in what would be considered a standard middle-class household, His father worked for an insurance company, and his mother was a homemaker. They were not dysfunctional. His mother was affectionate with all the children and doted on them. Richard still struggled to befriend his peers at the new school. He spent most of his spare time at home raising homing pigeons. It was a welcome distraction from the alienation and loneliness he felt due to his social difficulties at school. Richard's social prospects improved in high school. One friend described the adolescent Richard Cottingham. I met Richard on the athletic field. Richard stood apart in that he wasn't always at practice. He wasn't a joiner. He didn't have a nickname, and he wasn't part of our little clique. He had kind of a wise guy attitude about him. I don't think he was crazy about authority, I believe. Richard did hang out with a trio of friends, and he was the leader. Another of his school peers said, There was really nothing extraordinary about him, except he was kind of removed from the mainstream. One of his friends knew Richard was attracted to women, but he didn't recall him dating anyone. As he put it, when he spoke about women, it was kind of in a negative way. I certainly remember him talking among his friends, and perhaps in gym class, about what girls attracted him. He remembered that Cottingham had a type. To quote his old friend, he would talk about the girls in class, or the girls out on the street who were better endowed, larger breasted. That just sort of seemed to be a key attraction for him. Having a penchant for women with large breasts is hardly unusual among heterosexual men. It took on a distinctively nefarious dimension in the disordered mind of Richard Cottingham, however. 
His predilection for breasts had nothing to do with subconsciously seeking women who were best equipped to nurse infants. It had more to do with the budding paraphilia that blossomed in the shadow of death than anything preceding birth. He was also turned on by sadistic sex. Breasts and sadism. Those two fetishes would converge, but not in the company of a real live consenting sex partner. No living woman would agree to the conditions expected of them in the scenarios he visualized to fuel his autoerotic activity. His fantasies escalated in brutality, far beyond the point where even the most fervent female BDSM enthusiast would take a pass. It was a daunting obstruction, but he would find a way around it. After graduating high school, Richard Cunningham accepted a position as a computer operator with his father's employer, Metropolitan Life. During this time, he took several computer courses to upgrade his skills, and eventually he was hired by Blue Cross Blue Shield. At Blue Cross, Cunningham shared a workstation with a man named Dominic Volpe. They worked identical shifts from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. Volpe said of Cottingham, He was well-read, up-to-date on current events. He was pretty smart. His schedule freed Richard up to haunt New York's S&M clubs. It was an education in the art of sexual dominance. He knew he would be a dom long before he ever set foot in these establishments. He had known it for years. October 27th. 1967. 29-year-old Nancy Shaeva Vogel was on her way to play bingo at her church. Later that evening, her husband, Henry, became worried. She normally never stayed out late without calling. She was a loving wife and a devoted mother. Such irresponsible behavior was out of character for her. Something bad must have happened. She hadn't returned the following day and Henry reported her missing to the police. The police searched their neighborhood, but found no clues to her whereabouts. A friend said she never made it to the church. October 30th. Two 12-year-old girls went to one of their homes. They were in the upstairs bedroom when one of them spotted what she thought was a waxy mannequin in a car on the street below. The girls ran downstairs to investigate. To their horror, it wasn't a mannequin. They ran to the house of a neighbor who called the police. When police examined the body of Nancy Vogel, they found a woman who had been savagely beaten and strangled. She was naked. Her hands were bound in front of her body with a thin nylon cord. Oddly, her clothing was neatly folded and deposited underneath her body. There were other signs of a struggle. There were bruises on her face. She fought back at her attacker as best she could. The coroner ruled that she died from asphyxiation. The police were stumped. No clues. No tips. The case went cold a week after Nancy was found. Dominic Volpe found some of Richard's conversational material off-putting. 
He talked about crazy things, but we never thought he would do crazy things. I get chills on my arms thinking about it now, 35 years later. It was a shock. He was very upfront about it, bragging about prostitutes, S&M, gambling, all the vices that he bragged about. He liked the slave thing, the handcuffs. He was strange. Most of the stuff we would talk about, he'd talk about what he did after work. He'd talk about S&M clubs he'd go to. He'd talked about prostitutes. He used to talk about how he could lure prostitutes out of Manhattan, and he always had two pocketfuls of cash, thousands of dollars. He would show prostitutes cash and take them to New Jersey. Though some of this talk made Volpe uncomfortable, he still took it in stride. When you're talking at work, some of it you take with a grain of salt. It goes in one ear and out the other. Volpe recalled other strange behavior. The thing I remember most about him is that he couldn't sit still. He would be sitting in his office chair, shaking. His legs were shaking. His back was shaking. And he would keep that up for a whole shift, for eight, nine hours straight. After getting off work, Nottingham would relax and soothe his nerves with alcohol. His abuse of the substance became chronic, resulting in a DUI. May 3rd, 1970. Richard Cottingham got married. Her name was Janet, and she was large-breasted, so he was sure to satisfy his carnal desires to some degree. They settled in an apartment in Little Ferry, New Jersey. Richard still worked in New York. Their marriage was a happy one, save for the odd blemish. On August 21st, 1972, he was arrested and convicted for shoplifting at Stern's Department Store in Paramus, New Jersey. He paid a $50 fine. The aforementioned is far from the worst of his transgressions while married to Janet. He had affairs. Janet was not kinky, at least not in a way that could satisfy Richard. He was looking for something far more tawdry and malevolent. September 4th, 1973. A month before his first child was born, Richard Cottingham was arrested. He faced charges for robbery, assault, and sodomy. The charges were dropped. Janet did not leave him at the time. Richard was persuasive enough to convince her that the police were in error and it was all a misunderstanding. He was also good at deflecting blame. Their son Blair was born on October 15, 1973. However joyous this occasion may have been for Richard, it wasn't enough to keep him out of trouble. A few months after Blair's birth, Richard was charged with unlawful imprisonment and robbery. Once again, the charges were dropped. 1975. The Cottingham family moved to a three-bedroom rental house in Lodi, New Jersey. Their second son, Scott, was born in March of that year. Their daughter, Jenny, was born in 1976. Richard stayed out of trouble between the births of Scott and Jenny, but this repression was short-lived. Soon after Jenny's birth, Richard had an affair with a woman named Barbara Lucas. They saw each other for two years, ending in 1980. 
Despite his social difficulties, Richard Cottingham had a way with women. He was charismatic and employed the reality distortion field effectively. In an interview with a journalist, he described his success with women. I always had the ability as a young fellow to attract women. You know, it's one of those things you can't explain. If I went to a bar, very rarely would I walk out without a woman. Because I could understand the psychiatry, the psychological effect of how to pick up women, what they were looking for. I would always go to the prettiest ones because most men were afraid and they'd go to the average looking girl or the average person, the heavy set one that they figure would be an easy catch. I would go for the sharpest girl in the place. Sometimes I'd go out with girls for two, three months, then we'd just part ways. Christmas 1977. 26-year-old Mary Ann Carr went missing. She had a rendezvous with her mother-in-law while her husband was on a business trip. She never showed up. When it became clear that she had disappeared, her family was frantic. They notified the police. The investigation ran cold quickly. There were no clues, not even a body. December 16, 1977. Marianne Carr's body was found in the parking lot of a Quality Inn motel. It was dumped between a curb and a chain-link fence. Attorney Philip Kahlo described the condition of the corpse. Marianne Carr's body had ligature marks on the wrists and the ankles from handcuffs, and she had a ligature mark along her neck. Mary Carr's body was bruised all over. Her arms, her shoulders, her breasts, her thighs. Her right cheek hemorrhaged, indicating that she was likely struck in the face with a blunt object. The left leg of her pants was cut. A section of her hair was cut and landed on her right thigh. Her shoes, coat, and purse were missing. Residue from tape was detected around her mouth. There was a bite mark on her breast. It was no love bite. The perpetrator clamped down with all the fury and strength they could summon into their jaws. It was not a matter of unencumbered lust and passion leading to a miscalculation of aggression and strength. It was torture and nothing besides. There were no leads or clues. Evidence-wise, the cold case was a transparent void like ice and with comparable utility. September 23, 1978. Karen Schilt was having a few drinks at a bar. She fell into a conversation with a man who identified by the name John Schaefer. He asked her if she was a, quote, working girl, implying that he was interested to know if she was a prostitute. She told him she wasn't. He continued to pursue her, she had a boyfriend at the time. By 9 p.m., Karen began to feel nauseous, woozy, and weak. The room was spinning. She felt like she might faint. She left the bar and John Schaefer and headed home. As Karen walked home, John Schaefer caught up with her in his car. He pulled over and offered to give her a ride. 
She was so inebriated, she accepted without questioning his motives. She passed out almost immediately after getting in the car. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When Karen woke, they were driving on the New Jersey Turnpike. The man at the wheel was using a pseudonym when they met. It was really Richard Cottingham. He was putting red and blue capsules of Tuinol, frequently used for date rape at the time, into her mouth. He forced her to swallow them. She felt a burning sensation in her breast, but was relieved of this discomfort when she fell asleep. 9 a.m. Little Ferry Police Department patrolman Raymond Auger found Karen's body stuffed into a drainage ditch. It was situated behind a car at the Ledgeview Terrace apartment complex. Her shirt was pulled up, leaving her breasts exposed. One of them was burned with a cigarette. It was ferociously bitten. Her pants were undone. They were pulled down to her ankles. Her coat, scarf, and purse were missing. A highly valued ring was also taken. Police performed CPR on Karen, saving her life. She woke in hospital. She couldn't remember much about what happened the previous night. Doctors ordered tests, and they discovered the presence of secobarbital and amobarbital in her system. There were no real clues as to the true identity of the offender. Karen's description of the man she met was vague, since she was drunk when she met him, and the drugs also distorted her recall. Another cold case. October 10, 1978. Susan Geiger met Richard Cottingham. She gave him her phone number. She was a prostitute. He offered her $200 for sex, but on the night in question, she was booked up. He called the next day and they made an appointment. They went to a pub for drinks. He told Susan his name was Jim and mentioned that he was married with three kids. When Susan went to the washroom, he ordered screwdrivers for them both. He spiked hers with drugs. Susan's recollection of the rest of the night's events were hazy. After being driven by Jim and his Thunderbird, she woke up in a motel room. He was raping her. He whipped her aggressively with a garden hose. She woke the following afternoon on the floor of the motel room. She was bleeding from her vagina, rectum, breasts, face, and mouth. Her earrings had been ripped from her ears, which were also bleeding. Her body was covered with bruises from the lashings. Her purse had been taken. She called police. Captain John Agar of the South Hackensack Police Department answered Susan Geiger's call. Her clothing was torn and ragged. Her lips were swollen and crusted with dried blood. 
She was still woozy from the drugs and could not communicate effectively. She was rambling and incoherent. Other officers searched the motel room. Towels were crunchy with semen. They were taken to the crime lab. Despite the sperm samples, the police had nothing else to go on. Another one for the cold case file. In those days, Times Square was the epicenter of sleaze in New York City. Porn theaters, pornography shops, peep show booths, and other forms of adult entertainment blighted the landscape and the area was teeming with prostitution. The NYPD did little to control the sex trade in Times Square, and the call girls did little to nothing to conceal what they were doing. Due to his luck with gambling, Richard Cottingham would entice prostitutes with wads of cash. He would tell them stories in which he was cast as some kind of victim, down on his luck. The purpose was to convince them he was harmless, so he could win their trust. November 1979. A man registering as Carl Wilson of Merlin, New Jersey, booked a room at the Travelin' Motor Lodge in New York. It was located two blocks from Times Square. He was remembered by staff as being tall, in his thirties with sandy hair. They said he placed a Do Not Disturb sign on his room, 417. The staff didn't see him again after he checked in. It was Richard Cottingham. December 2nd, 1979. Cottingham picked up two prostitutes. Dita Gadarzi, a Kuwaiti immigrant. The other one was a Jane Doe in her 20s. He took them to his motel room. At what would have been checkout time, an employee found two women in room 417. Both had been raped and tortured. Shallow slash marks were made across their torsos. Curved cuts were made around the women's breasts and straight across beneath them. Pathologist Dr. Louis Napolitano commented on the condition of the bodies. The thing that's important, there were no penetrating wounds. There were no knife wounds that penetrated into the body. They were all superficial. He's teasing them. I'm not doing anything to you to kill you right away. I'm putting a knife in your chest or cutting or making you die right away. No, I want you to know I'm here doing things to you. He's doing things to them to make them afraid, to have them subjugate to him. I'm doing this to you and I can make it worse. After torturing the women, Nottingham bound them before brutally raping and murdering them. He didn't stop there. He mutilated their corpses. He severed their hands and heads. He placed the victims separately on the suite's twin beds. Their clothing was neatly folded and placed in the bathtub. He sprinkled accelerant on their torsos. He set fire to the room. The bodies were desecrated. One of the attending firefighters was so disturbed by what he saw at the scene, he underwent trauma counseling. He described it as the worst thing he had encountered in his entire career. For Richard Cottingham, these escapades of the macabre were endlessly entertaining. 
to quote Cottingham from an interview with a journalist, I enjoyed it. It was a game. It's scary to a girl to have something done like that. To be so close to a knife, so to speak, pressed against you. The situations that I was seeking were more of a power trip. What I was doing was something like a power trip. The power of holding someone's fate in your hands is a very powerful aphrodisiac. The adrenaline rush is you're in complete control of somebody's destiny. Police distributed missing persons posters bearing images of Jane Doe's clothing, but this produced no leads. Cunningham explained his motivation to mutilate his victims. That was done only to prevent identification. He would carry the severed body parts away in a duffel bag. He described his temperament as he did so. I had nerves of steel. When I disposed of the heads, I took them out of the hotel. Two cops pull me over. They see me with a carry-all bag at 3.30 in the morning. They asked me what I was doing. I said I was staying in the hotel and was going to get something to eat. Without batting an eye, they would believe me. They never asked what was in the bag or for any ID or anything like that. I could make people believe what they wanted to believe. It's godlike, almost. May 5th, 1980. Marianne San was a housekeeper at the Quality Inn Motel in Hasbro Heights, New Jersey. She was cleaning room 132. There were twin beds in the room. One had not been slept in, while the other's bedspread was crooked and pulled down from the foot of the bed. Marianne ran the vacuum. When she tried to vacuum underneath an unmade bed from the foot, the device slammed up against something. It was a large object, big enough to block the entryway. She noticed a foul odor in the room. To quote one police officer, Lifting the mattress from the frame, she was startled to see the naked, handcuffed body of a naked, deceased female lying there. The woman was 19-year-old Valerie Ann Street. Her hands were twisted beneath her. The cuffs were placed on her wrists so tightly they left deep markings, i.e. raw and red gouges of exposed flesh. Her body was covered from top to bottom with bruises, slashes, and cuts. There were bite marks on her left breast. The nipple was chewed off. Residue of tape around her mouth implied that she was gagged. Ligature marks on her neck suggested that she died from strangulation. All her clothing and ID were stolen. Conclusions of the autopsy determined that she was struck on the right side of her head, which caused severe trauma. The pathologist estimated that she was tortured throughout a 24-hour period. May 12, 1980. After a cooling-off period typical of serial killers, Richard Cottingham dumped the body of cocktail waitress Pamela Weisenfeld in a parking lot in Teaneck, New Jersey. She had been beaten while drugged. Her breasts had been viciously bitten. May 15th, firefighters were dispatched to a hotel. 
Once again, they found the mutilated corpse of a young woman. There were several deep bite marks on her body. Her breasts were sliced off with the precision cutting style of a professional butcher. They were neatly arranged on the headboard. The victim was 25-year-old Jean Rayner, a prostitute. She had run-ins with the law over the years, so when her fingerprints were submitted, they got a match. The police realized that a serial offender may be responsible. A pattern emerged, the motel fires, the bite marks. The media dubbed the as yet unidentified murderer as the Times Square Ripper and the Torso Killer. April 1980. The Cottingham marriage falls apart. Janet filed for divorce, charging Richard with, quote, extreme cruelty, end quote. Her animus was partially driven by his refusal to have sex with her since 1976. Her other complaints involved such acts as leaving the family financially neglected. He often did not return home until 4 or 5 a.m., despite his shifts at Blue Cross ending at 11 p.m. He would go on vacations alone. She also alleged that he frequented Plato's Retreat, a heterosexual swingers club located in Manhattan. She said he was a regular patron of gay bars and bathhouses. 18-year-old Leslie Ann O'Dell was a prostitute working the circuit in Times Square. Richard Cottingham approached her, identifying himself as Tommy. He took her out for drinks. He told her about his personal life to build trust. He offered to help her escape prostitution by taking her to a bus terminal in New Jersey. She took him up on it. After taking her to a diner and making a deal to accept $100 from him for sex, they went to the Hasbro Quality Inn Motor Hotel, the same establishment where Valerie Ann Street was killed. Once in the room, Cottingham offered to give Leslie a massage. She got on her stomach. To quote Leslie, he said he wanted to be my friend. Still on her stomach, Cottingham straddled her. He held a knife to her throat. He told her it would give him pleasure to torture women. He called her a whore and told her she deserved all the pain he was about to visit upon her. He flipped her over. He cut her. He informed her that he would burn her breasts, her vagina, and her anus. He was overjoyed by her suffering and attempts to escape. Cottingham sank his teeth into Leslie's nipple hard enough to draw blood. He clamped down harder nearly tearing the nipple off. He lapped up some of her blood with his tongue. For untold hours, Cottingham brutally raped and sodomized Leslie. He forced her to perform fellatio on him. He beat her. He slashed her with his knife several times. In between torture sessions, Cottingham would take a breather. He would wipe Leslie's face with a damp washcloth. She saw the gun he came to the room with. On one occasion, when she was permitted to go about the room uncuffed, she grabbed the pistol and tried to shoot him. It turned out to be a replica gun. Cottingham grabbed his knife and continued to violate Leslie. 
she screamed bloody murder. Another guest at the hotel was disturbed by what she heard and reported it to the front desk. They called the police. The police attended to the matter, banging on the door and demanding that someone answer. Several minutes later, the door was finally opened, just a crack. Leslie was standing there, obviously terrified. Before positioning himself behind her, Cottingham instructed her to tell the police that she was fine. She did, but it was clear given the fear in her eyes that nothing could have been further from the truth. To quote one officer, with her eyes, she gave the impression that everything was not okay. She moved them right to left, indicated that there was a problem. She couldn't say anything because he was right there with her. But she managed to get a message out, and she outsmarted him. Cottingham was so enamored of a victim's vocalized symptoms of torture that, with Leslie as the alarm, his own carelessness alerted the police to the end of the trail of blood that led to the feet of the torso killer. He tried to escape by running out the back door with his torture equipment carried in a bag. He didn't get far. Police caught up with him and he was taken into custody. The bag he was carrying contained the following items. A leather gag. Two slave collars. A switchblade. Replica pistols. Prescription pills, Valium and barbiturates. At the police station, Richard Cottingham was read his Miranda rights. He told them the sex he had with Leslie was consensual, that they mutually agreed that she would accept $180 so he could do whatever he wanted. The interrogating officers took the tack of showing sympathy for Cottingham, however insincere. To quote one of the officers, he was sitting there with Alan and I, and I was holding his hand and trying to get him to confess. His eyes welled up and he said, I have a problem with women. He told them he tortured Leslie so savagely because of his stressful divorce. With the evidence stacked against him, Richard Cottingham recognized it was time to get an attorney. Police searched Richard Cottingham's home to see if there was more evidence they could use in the case. To quote one officer, he had in this room souvenirs or memorabilia or whatever you want to call it. Items that he took from these women after he tortured them and murdered them. Richard Cottingham was slapped with the following charges. Kidnapping. Attempted murder. Aggravated assault. Aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Aggravated sexual assault while armed. Sodomy. Aggravated sexual assault while armed. Fellatio. Possession of a weapon. Possession of controlled dangerous substances. Secobarbital and amobarbital. Possession of a controlled dangerous substance. Valium. After Karen Schilt and Susan Geiger identified Cottingham in a police lineup, he was indicted by a grand jury on additional charges, including those for two more murders, the attempted murder of another woman, and three kidnappings. He pleaded not guilty. He was held on a $350,000 bond. 
Following his arrest and detention, Richard Cottingham attempted suicide three times. On one occasion, he smashed one of the lenses of his glasses and slid his wrists with it. Cottingham's attorney advised him not to take the stand in court, since there were many holes in his story that even someone with no legal training could spot. Nevertheless, Cottingham was confident of his prowess as a silver-tongued devil, and decided he could bamboozle the court as he did the women he bedded. During his testimony, he was very upfront about aspects of his character and sexual proclivities, while denying most of the accusations that were made against him. He admitted that he long fantasized about tying up defenseless women and having his way with them. To quote Cottingham, The whole idea of bondage had aroused and fascinated me since I was very young. He said that he demanded that his victims address him as master, and when they didn't, there was hell to pay. He categorically denied having committed murder. He claimed to have alibis, that he was with his girlfriend when four of the five murders were committed. He insisted that he didn't kidnap and assault Susan Geiger and Pamela Weisenfeld. He refuted the claim that he assaulted Karen Schilt. He told the court he didn't kill Valerie Ann Street, despite the fact that his fingerprints were found on the handcuffs. It didn't help that his calling card of biting women on the breast was found in every case. June 1981, Richard Cottingham was convicted on 15 of 21 felony counts. Facing the prospect of dying in prison, Cottingham attempted suicide for the fourth time by drinking six ounces of liquid antidepressants. Guards were unable to rouse him back to consciousness, but he was taken to hospital and stabilized. July 25th. Richard Cottingham received a sentence of between 173 and 197 years in prison for the murder of Valerie Ann Street and the assaults of the four other women, which included Leslie O'Dell. He was also ordered to pay a fine of $2,350. He would not be eligible for parole for at least 30 years. This was not his last sentencing hearing. He still faced other charges including for a crime he committed against a woman who lived in the same apartment building when he and Janet were still married. February 25, 1982. Cottingham collapsed in an elevator while en route to his jail cell after a day in court. He was taken to hospital, where he was diagnosed with a duodenal ulcer. His attorney requested the designation of a mistrial since his client was too unwell to attend the proceedings. September 28, 1982. Richard Cottingham went on trial for the murder of Marianne Carr. He requested a non-jury trial. He insisted that he was not guilty. The evidence portended an unfavorable outcome for Cottingham. The murder was very similar in methodology and trademark to the others he committed. Though he signed into the motels with pseudonyms, handwriting analysis confirmed that the cursive was the handiwork of Richard Cottingham. October 3, 1982. 
Cottingham somehow managed to escape from his holding cell during the lunch hour. He made it out of the courthouse and went out for something to eat, returning to the courthouse later. As one officer described the incident, I could see him running from the courthouse across the street. Another sheriff's officer had spotted him as well, and we both tackled him on the street and put him in handcuffs and restrained him and brought him back to the courthouse. October 13, 1982. Richard Cottingham was found guilty for the murder of Mary Ann Carr. He was sentenced to 25 years to life, with a minimum of 30 years to be served congruent with his previous sentence. July 5, 1984. Richard Cottingham attempted suicide for the fifth time. He cut his left forearm with a razor. He made sure to do it in court and in full sight of the jury. He did not succeed in dying. Homicide was his specialty. Suicide? Not so much. Four days later, the jury found him guilty for the murder of Dita Gadarzi, Jean Rayner, and Jane Doe. August 28, 1984. Richard Cottingham was sentenced to 75 additional years to life in prison. He began his sentence at Trenton State Prison in New Jersey. 2010. Cottingham admitted to killing Nancy Shiva Vogel. He pled guilty for the first time. He received yet another life sentence to be served concurrently with the others. Finally, owning up to being a sadistic serial killer, Cottingham was quoted as saying, Obviously, I must be sick somehow. Normal people don't do what I did. In an interview with a journalist in prison, he made the following statements. When asked why he inflicted torture on his victims, he said, I wanted to create a sensationalism. When asked what motivated him to slice off a victim's breasts and arrange them neatly like home decor, he said it was, quote, to do something different, end quote. He was asked how he could do something so evil and with so much ease. He said, It's not a person anymore. It's a body. You don't feel anything. Assessing himself as a murderer, he said, I wanted to be the best at whatever I did, and I wanted to be the best serial killer. Even as a child, I had to be the best at whatever I did, or I wouldn't do it. Subliminally, I was a manipulative control freak. It was my way or the highway. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.